0: Let's pray together. Our God and Father, how thankful we are for all that there is to celebrate on this day. And it is all because of Christ. Would you please continue to open our hearts and awaken our souls that we may see Jesus as he truly is. Take us again to the cross that we may see the power of his death to remove the burdens of our sin. What a staggering reality it is. That Jesus was made sin for us. That he became a curse for us. And there at the cross, the infinite penalty was due and the infinite punishment was endured. Oh, how we thank you that Christ was all anguish, that we might be all joy. Forsaken, that we might be brought near crushed as your own enemy that we might be welcomed as friends and true sons stripped that we might be robed in righteousness shamed that we might be sharers of his glory wounded that we might be healed and a thirst that we might drink of the fountain of living waters oh what a savior he is Lord Jesus, you laid down your life for sinners like us and knew the depths of our sin, not because there was any sin in you, but because of what you became on that horrific cross. How we thank you that you are our mighty and only Savior. Thank you for taking the perfect and full wrath of Almighty God that should have been ours. Thank you that you have died for us. And thank you that you have risen again. Cause us this day, Spirit of God, to know the power of the cross. Cause us this day to know the peace of God that flows from that cross. The wonder, the awe, the humility, the brokenness, the joy, the delight, and the obedience. And because of the cross, lead us, O conquering Savior. Lead us in this great gospel mission until the nations are yours. And the fullness of the redemptive plan has come to pass. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans 16, please. And for those of you who have been here for about a year and a half, uh, your your Bibles probably fall open to that place. And I hope they will remain uh, familiar pages to you. So today we come to the end of Romans 16. And I, I must tell you that uh, I have a certain sadness in my heart. Uh, what a study it's been. About 45 messages. I didn't, I didn't count them in total, but I did a quick uh, count for my own, just my own interest a couple of days ago. And I think it's right at 45. Um, in many ways, uh, I, well, I'm going to use this funny little text exchange. Any of you ever texted somebody and realized later it's not the person I thought I was texting? Uh, there are some humorous examples of that. Here's a text that uh, a certain individual received. Hey, Dr. Park, this is Matt uh, from the vascular lab. I have an outpatient here with an external iliac occlusion with cold foot pain and numbness that started three days ago. What should I do with her? Hi, this is Hannah. I think you have the wrong number, but I Googled it, and I'm pretty sure you need to put a stent in her left radial artery. Best of luck, Matt. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. Sorry, wrong number, Hannah. She ended up actually getting a stint. Took about three hours longer for trained medical professionals to figure out what took you three minutes. Good job. (laughs) Hannah says, yo, y'all hiring? (laughs) The sadness in my heart, on a little more serious note, is that I feel in many ways we've just barely Googled the book of Romans. 45 messages is not enough. One of the pastors and preachers that I follow and even have listened to every single one of his messages through this series, he preached 72 messages. I understand why. Others that I've known have preached hundreds of messages from Romans. So even though we come to the conclusion today, and I think it's the good and right thing to do, I mean, it wouldn't be wrong to continue in Romans, even to start over again and go back through it, but we certainly have gone to the high points, and though we have left a lot of treasure still in the ground, so to speak. We, we've extracted in mind enough of it that I hope all of you would say, I'll never be the same. That's what the Word of God is designed to do, to transform us. We never should be the same. And so as we come to the end of Romans, if you share that same sadness, take heart because the book is not closed to us from this point forward. And I hope that you will be a frequent visitor to it. That you will walk some of these beautiful gospel pathways and pause and linger even longer in certain sections where we just kind of kept blazing through that you will immerse your heart and mind in this truth because it is the living word of God and it is designed to change you. And even in Paul's final word, we're going to see how he personally believes that, operates under the power of it, and wants to share that. So if your Bibles are open to Romans 16, look at verse 21. In conclusion, Paul writes, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, that's Paul's scribe, if you will, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Amen. What a conclusion. Very briefly, lest we pass over some really important things, you should study that list of names, the the second set of greetings that are found in this chapter. I'll actually refer to this a little bit later because it becomes a living illustration of some of the, the, the rich things that Paul is telling us. Those characters, if you just find out where they're located from, you will realize it's a very diverse group of people. One of those men is from the north rim of Africa. Others are from the region known in those days as Macedonia, what is present-day Turkey in the eastern parts of the Mediterranean. There are Jews and Gentiles mixed in there. We think there's a slave, and then he even refers to the city treasurer of Corinth. From rich to poor, from influential to to no names. The gospel reaches into cities and communities, into the very nations, and draws them together in Jesus. That would be a rich shaft of gospel treasure to to, uh, dig into a little later. I'll just tease you with that, if you will. Now, very briefly, I also want to say, real quickly, some of you may have noticed in some of the English versions, there's no verse 24. There's a little marginal note. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, it appears there. Uh, Most of the other English versions, uh, at most, will put a little marginal note. It just goes back to textual evidence. I can give you a fuller explanation if you're interested afterwards. It should not cause you to question the integrity of the text, because especially in our generation, we have almost 24,000 ancient manuscripts to compare and consult. And if you're reading verse 24, you'll notice it's identical, except for one word, to the very end of verse 20. So it's not like somebody peeled out a really important piece of truth and said, we don't believe that, so we're you know doing the Thomas Jefferson thing, going to cut that out of our Bible. No, it's there. There's actually just good evidence from some of the oldest manuscripts that it wasn't originally there. Real quick aside, but I wanted to be fair and nothing to skip over or act like, oh, that scares us you know, that some of the versions don't have it and and others do. But the big theme, and I highlighted it here so you could really see how Paul begins a thought in verse 25, now to him, and then he has, as he so often does, a few other little thoughts that flow out of it, important ones, and we're going to work through those, but the one main idea, the one main sentence from these last thoughts from Paul's heart through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, now to him, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the big heading over all of us. And all glory goes to God. And so I want you to begin to see, first of all, glory to God. This should be the exclamation of every believer, every follower of, of God through Christ. Glory to God for his saving power which he has revealed in Christ. Look at verse 25 with me. To him who is able to strengthen you. God is able to strengthen you. That word that we translate into the English able is the same word that we translated back in chapter 1 out of the the Greek into the English with the word power. If you remember from Romans 1 where Paul is introducing the the letter to the Romans, he says to them, I am not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ for it, that is the gospel is, the power of God unto salvation. Power and Able are the same root word. What it is telling us is not just that you know God has the ability. Maybe He will. Maybe He won't. No, there's an active activation of God's power in the gospel. Remember, too, at the outset, we looked at a a contrast and comparison of several of the key powers, and they're the same powers that are operating on planet Earth today. You had the power of Rome, which was primarily a political machine. Culturally, they were moving forward by military might, by education, by philosophy. Rome was a culture of great power. You also had, secondly, a powerful religious machine in Paul's generation. Primarily coming out of Jerusalem, the Jewish power is what he will unfold here. But it was a highly tuned religious system. The problem was It was destroying people and not actually leading them to eternal life. It put all the pressure back on them to perform, to measure up, to to obey God's law perfectly, to, to learn, to grow, all kinds of things that on the surface seemed really good, but there was no message of spiritual transformation through Jesus Christ in it. And so the gospel power that Paul writes of through this letter the gospel power that, as we will see in a moment, he preached and proclaimed was of a totally different kind because it's not political power that philosophers came up with or politicians have put forward. It's not a religious power that religious people have kind of fine-tuned and brought to the forefront. It is the actual power of God unto salvation. So Romans 1.16 When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. He is positioning that in contrast to every other power. And now Paul is writing at the conclusion that God has an achieving power to do something that is necessary. He is able to strengthen his people An author that I have shared with you many times and Bible scholar John Stott says, if the gospel is God's power to save, it is also God's power to establish or to strengthen. Now, how does God do that? Well, look at the text again. Because Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He strengthens us, or that is, confirms us, establishes us according to his gospel. It's interesting that he uses that little, that little word, my. He did that one other time. So two times in the letter to Romans, he refers to it as my gospel. We know from chapter 1 it is the gospel of God. That is, it comes from God himself. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul had written, it's the gospel of his son. That is, it's the gospel about Jesus Christ. But for the second time, Paul writes of my gospel. And you know, when you have come to know and experience the power of God's gospel, the power of his deliverance from your sin, the power of his justification from guilt, the power of his adoption as a true son, the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, the power of his assurance and consolation that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, then you too may rightly say, it is my gospel. Paul didn't come up with it. I didn't come up with it, and neither did you, but God brings it to us in such a divinely powerful and personal way that it is appropriate for us to speak of it as my gospel. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, this is interesting to me because this is not something totally separated from the gospel. It actually helps us to understand what the gospel includes That term preaching, as we've encountered this in multiple points already, but it's helpful for us to review it, has to do with the public proclamation of this good news. It's actually what we're doing in this place today. I'm not the only one who's had an opportunity. You've actually been publicly proclaiming it in song. We've read the scriptures. We've prayed through pieces of the gospel. So there's an actual public proclamation that's taking place here today as there was in Paul's day. In Romans 1.15, he had written, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Apparently never been there, never met many of these saints that he was becoming familiar with. But when you understand the power of this good news, when you've been changed by it, and remember, Paul wrote to Timothy in that first letter to Timothy, I was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and did great injury to the church, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorance. That gospel transformation that had taken hold of his heart and moved him from being a murderer to a lover. Of all nations, from being one who persecuted the church to being a man who would proclaim the good news to anyone who would hear, that's a gospel he's eager to preach, and it should be our desire to proclaim it publicly. It's too good of news to keep to ourselves. You'll remember from chapter 10 and verse 14 and 15 where Paul had asked four different questions How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How will they hear unless someone preaches to them, he said. And he uses that term. And then the fourth question, how will they preach unless they are sent? So you have kind of this, this line of boxcars and thinking, so to speak. And Paul hitches one to the other and, and is compelled by the good news to say, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And Back in chapter 15, not too many weeks ago, we had heard Paul write, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named. Oh, what a message it is. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 through 5? For here Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, that's what distinguishes historic Christianity from so many other religions of the world. At the center is not just a religious figure who's powerful or wise or who has a philosophy of life that is compelling to us, but at the center of this gospel is a Savior who died a criminal's death, who died a sinner's death. And so Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. That is, he didn't come like an ordinary philosopher of his day, spouting the Greek or Roman philosophy or throwing out plausible arguments just to intrigue uh, the hearers or to advance the cause of rhetoric in his day. No, he says, I came in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might rest in, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We live in a world today that is desperate for someone to offer a message of hope. And we come short if we offer anything less than Jesus Christ. Yes, there are a number of causes that are worth advancing. Yes, there are a number of causes that are worth your participation. But not one of them will ultimately remedy the true problem in the heart of humankind unless it takes the heart of the human to Jesus. And so the preaching of Christ and his cross is central to Paul's life and ministry because the message of Christ and his cross is the heart of the gospel. God has ordained that the public proclamation of the gospel is an essential means of our strengthening to return now to Romans 16. It's not the only way that he strengthens, but it is a priority way. That's part of the reason we must not neglect the assembling of ourselves together in a setting like this. We all need to hear the word proclaimed. This lone ranger mentality that grips the American church is not of God. You will not know the full effects of God's strengthening in your soul apart from the preaching of Jesus Christ. And I would say, it, to, to those of you who would say, well, there's so much available online, and actually there are much better preachers available online than we have at Gospel Hope, and I would agree with that. I mean, if you had a choice to listen to me or, you know, and put in, I mean, I, one of my favorites is Sinclair Ferguson, You should choose Sinclair Ferguson every day of the week, but God didn't appoint Sinclair Ferguson to stand in this room and preach as he has asked several of us to do. You cannot receive the same strengthening by just listening to messages online. You can't receive the same strengthening by being alone even with manuscripts of great sermons in front of you. God has ordained the public proclamation of his word as a means of strengthening you. We are not here to share our collective wisdom or personal experience. We're here to open the sacred book together and to hear the public proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ. It's not even the good news about prophets like Moses or Isaiah or kings like David or Uzziah or apostles like Peter and Paul. It is a message about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no one else like him. Now look at the next phrase. Paul goes on to say, according to the revelation of the mystery. That is, the gospel is in accordance with or based on the revelation of the mystery. Now, we've encountered this term before, but some of you are new to us and may say, what mystery is he talking about? Well, first of all, you need to understand how he uses the term mystery. That actually has reference to something that was hidden to humanity until God decided to reveal it. Now, we have other uses for it in our in our present-day conversation, those are legitimate. So I'm not trying to say whatever you know the Oxford Dictionary or Webster's might say to you is an incorrect definition, but I'm trying to give you a helpful understanding as to how the biblical term is used for mystery. And look at the next phrase because Paul essentially explains it and defines it. A mystery is that was, which was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. Well, who disclosed it? God. God in his kindness. He decided that The generation that Paul was a part of and every generation since should not be without an understanding of this great mystery. Now turn over to the book of Colossians. You're in Romans, so you need to keep going toward the back of the Bible. It's not too distant, so don't don't turn all the way to Revelation or something like that. Uh, And if you find Galatians, then go through Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. And I want you to see a couple of cross-references here where it is even more explicitly stated to us what this mystery is than what Paul does in Romans. And Matt read one of those passages. We could go to Ephesians uh, 3, verses 1 through 10 again. We just had Matt read that in the middle of the service. But now Colossians 1.27. God, through Paul, is sending a letter to the saints at at the church in Colossae, the Colossians. And so to them, Paul writes, that is to the saints... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery, Paul? Here it comes, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that's its own remarkable truth. How how could Christ be in me? And you even heard in some of the baptismal testimonies, I asked Jesus to be my Savior or to come in. That's because the mystery of the gospel is that Christ doesn't just come alongside you you know, as an instructor or guru or even a friend, although he is a friend, but he actually comes to make his dwelling in us. And Paul says it's a mystery, and it's not just a, a mystery that is, is granted to the Jewish nation, as it seemed to be a, a Jewish thing for so long. No, he blew it wide open after the resurrection of Christ, and this mystery includes the Gentiles. So the mystery is Christ in the Jew, Christ in the Samaritan, Christ in the Greek, Christ in the Roman, Christ in the American, Christ in the Nigerian, Christ in the Italian, Christ in the German, Christ in the Utah. To go back to that little greeting that I blew through with Timothy and Erastus and everybody else in between, we could also say the mystery would be Christ in that mixed-race child that Timothy was. A Greek father, Jewish mother. Christ in the Libyan, Lucius. Christ in the Thessalonican, Jason. Christ in the Berean, Sopater. Christ in Tertius, who we think was a household slave. Christ in the wealthy Corinthian, Gaius, who was rich enough to own a home, large enough to have the church come and assemble in his house. Christ in the city treasurer, Erastus. Christ in the obscure character, Quartus. Christ in people from every ethnic group of the world. Go to Colossians 2 and look at verses 1 through 4. Just a few verses below where you are. Paul goes on to explain, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In many ways, it seems too simplistic to say that in Christ are hidden all the treasures, the real wisdom of life certainly there must be something we would add to the life and death and resurrection of Christ certainly there is something that we must do to prove to God we're truly sincere we want to follow him we, we want to be his people certainly there's something more than what we've been told and Paul keeps saying no it's all found in Jesus the work is done the blood has been shed The empty tomb is the forever sign that God has accomplished salvation for those who believe. So no wonder Paul is pausing here to say to him be glory. Go back to Romans 16. And makes reference to the preaching of the gospel. Which is according to the revelation of this mystery. And the mystery is Christ. And then he says in verse 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Pausing briefly, the prophetic writings that he's referring to are simply the Old Testament. Most likely, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, uh, the New Testament book of James had been completed. We feel fairly certain that the letters to the Corinthians had been written, and then the others, it's an educated guess at best, because just like in this letter, there's no date given to it. When Paul speaks of the prophetic writings, he's referring to Genesis to Malachi those precious books that did foretell Messiah would come. That told about a Savior who would enter the world, who would suffer and die, as Isaiah 53 so beautifully describes for us. And Paul says the prophetic writings have been made known that as God was at work in his day, and he continues even to this very day to make it known to all nations, all ethnic groups, The gospel was never intended to be exclusive to one group. And for us to think somehow that we're the uniquely blessed ones is an offense to the God who is exercising his power. So to God be glory for his power to strengthen his people, to strengthen his church in the gospel. Preaching and prophetic writings are the particular means that Paul mentions here. Now, second big thought for you glory to god for his eternal purpose in christ look at the next little phrase this is happening paul says now i'm in the middle of verse 26 according to the command of the eternal god let's not let's not blow by this too quickly this god of the gospel this god of the old and the new testament is an eternal god and he did not come into existence like you and i came into existence If you were representing this with with some kind of timeline, you would not, you know, peg a dot at a certain point and then draw a line with an arrow, you know, signaling that God came into being at some point and now he continues eternally. No, when the Bible speaks of God being the eternal God, you, you should draw a line that has arrows on either end. He just goes and goes in either direction. He reveals himself to us, not only as the self-existent one, but as the God who has no beginning and has no end. What a God this is. So God is eternal, but what Paul brings into focus is that his purpose, specifically the purpose to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations, is his eternal purpose. Douglas Moo, who I've shared with you on a number of occasions, who has been a great blessing. He's a Bible scholar and author. He's written a great commentary on the book of Romans. I would encourage all of you to add it to your library. He writes of this, we understand the words obedience and faith to be mutually interpreting. So what is Paul getting at about, with this phrase, the obedience of faith? Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. They should not be equated And they should not be compartmentalized or made into separate stages of Christian experience. Paul called men and women to a faith that was always inseparable from obedience. For the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord. Because he's Lord, we obey him. Likewise, he has called us to an obedience that could never be divorced from faith. For we can obey Jesus as Lord only when we have given ourselves to him in faith. Faith. see the eternal purpose of God what he has determined of his own will and wisdom is to make known this mystery which is Christ at the time that he chose to do it and the command as Paul uses that term is not to any specific historical divine command one author writes but it, it's just the expression of God's will this was his idea it was his plan, it's his purpose, and the whole purpose is to reveal to people like you and me who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's where I step back and I just say thank you, Lord. What a mighty command this is, what a mighty word of saving grace that the God whose glory, remember chapter one that says sinful people like you and me exchange the glory of God? We traded in the glory of God for lesser glories and even some of them immoral things? Oh, what a mighty word of command that this God would stand over rebellious people like us, rebellious ethnic groups of the ages and say, let the gospel of Jesus Christ be known to them. Let it be proclaimed publicly. Let Christ be known in the fullness of his deity. Let Christ be known in the bitterness of his suffering. Let Christ be known in the redeeming power of his cross. Let Christ be known in the glory and power of his resurrection. Let Christ be known as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let Christ be known that these rebels might live and not die. Glory to God for this eternal purpose. And I marvel again to think that the fact that here we are assembled here, right now, at this moment, 2,000 years beyond the death of Christ and his resurrection, assembled in a land unknown to the apostles, the ones he first commissioned to carry the good news into the, all the world. Remember Matthew 28? Go make disciples. Teach them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We just did that this morning. What a privilege. And we're proclaiming the same message. In the English language, which none of those people knew, but Jesus did. And God the Father did. And so here we are, the substance of this gospel unchanged, its its continuity unbroken, and it's a testimony to the eternality of God's purposes in Christ. What a command! I pause and I ask a very important question, an eternally significant important. My friend, have you ever heard this God that we're looking at and reading of this morning, have you ever heard his summons in your heart and life? Are you hearing it now? Is there something about the scriptures we're reading or the songs that we have sung or other texts that we have read that speaks to your soul and you, you, if if you're really honest, would say, I think God is calling me right now to put my faith in him, to turn from my sin and believe in him. Oh, my friend, listen. Listen to him. He doesn't simply want you to know that there is a command out there somewhere in eternity. He wants you to personalize it, that you might come into a saving relationship with him and have the kind of assurance that your sins are forgiven, that eternity is secure. God calls you personally to believe and obey the truth. He wants you to believe and obey the truth that he is the righteous judge who demands perfect righteousness and who does condemn all sin. He wants you to believe and obey the truth that there is not one righteous, not even one, to believe that we're all guilty before him, all under condemnation, as he has said earlier in this very letter. Some of us think that if we just had the chance to reform our lives and change our ways, perhaps we could one day achieve the necessary righteousness and make God happy, but that's not the gospel. It's not the good news of how you could transform yourself or work your way back into God's favor. The gospel tells us that God's wrath is already being revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness, but in the same gospel, God reveals to us that there is a righteousness that he makes available to sinners like us, It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness to be received by faith alone. He calls you to believe it, to obey it. What a gospel. What a command. Aren't you thankful that it's not a gospel of our good works, but it's the gospel of God's eternal work through Jesus? All glory to God for his eternal purpose in salvation. Finally, verse 27, all glory to God for his wisdom that is revealed in Christ. So now Paul comes back to the specific subject and verb that he started in verse 25, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Well, God is uniquely wise. While wisdom is accessible to all of us, we are not by nature or birth inherently wise. Proverbs tells us that. Proverbs 22 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod will drive it far from him. You think your kids were born wise? You don't have your eyes and ears open. The the natural foolishness is why moms have to say things like, You weren't born in a barn. You're not leaving the house dressed like that. Did you brush your teeth this week? Please go take a shower don't make me come in there now that's just a sampling of the kinds of phrases that moms say until they're blue in the face because fools entered their world and we all know it's dad's fault right but moms are saddled with the responsibility you're not by nature a wise person but the infinite eternal God is inherently wise he didn't come to be wise, he's always been wise. In the same way that he's always been, all of his perfections have always been a part of his eternal being. I know that, you know, for finite creatures like us, we go, "I I can affirm that, but I can't really understand it." It's okay to have things in life that you don't fully understand. It's a reminder that we are finite and we need a God who is infinite. God's wisdom is seen in creation. It's part of the reason I chose that particular uh, photograph for the PowerPoint. I mean, who has not marveled at images like these? That's a strand of DNA, human DNA. I hope you're all following the the release of these magnificent photographs from the James Webb Telescope and NASA. And how devastating that some tiny little pebble floating through space, like damage that thing irreparably. It doesn't mean it's totally useless now, but I mean, we're getting images from from the extended universe that we've never had access to before. All of this is a reminder to us that the God who created all of this is exceedingly wise and powerful. But his wisdom is not as glorious as this is, his wisdom is, is actually not chiefly seen in creation. No, his wisdom is chiefly seen somewhere else. But we still pause to marvel, don't we? Psalm 104, verses 24 and 25 captures some of this. We we stare through a telescope like the Webb telescope and say, oh Lord, how manifold are your works? Or we look through the microscope and and see things that are hidden to these human eyes that need spectacular assistance and, and realize where did this come from? The God who reveals himself in the word has created all of these things. And we say with the psalmist, in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. But God's unique wisdom is most powerfully seen in Jesus Christ. And Go back to 1 Corinthians with me, please. You're actually just one page from it. When I say go back, I should say go over. It's the very next letter in the New Testament. Paul writes to us in verse 21, "...since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom." And he's probably speaking specifically and chiefly of the popular cultural wisdom of the day, philosophers and sophists and rhetoricians, what they were promoting and speaking. But it didn't lead anybody to know the true God. Let's read on. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, and we can rightly insert the word is, the power of God and God. The wisdom of God. As spectacular as microscopic strands of DNA are, as spectacular as the magnificent bodies in the far ends of the universe are, not one of them reveals the wisdom of this God as brilliantly or as powerfully as Jesus Christ. That God would become man live as an ordinary man and then begin to minister and serve and through his miracles prove he's God come in flesh and then die as the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins, not just of the Jewish people that he became a part of, but for the sins of the world, every person in every generation, that God would formulate this plan in eternity past and command it not only to be proclaimed, but to, to move forward in in unhindered success, that God would do all of this in Jesus, that is wisdom. And that's why, beloved, we will spend eternity praising God for Christ. And that's why God receives glory. If you go back to Romans 16 and look at that last little phrase, forevermore through Jesus Christ, to God be all the glory for his perfect wisdom. What a gospel. What a God. I really struggled with, so, you know, how, how do we wrap up this series with, you know, just some practical points? Like, what do we carry out of here? Here, here are the two words that I, I do believe God has given me. First of all, this gospel, this gospel, first of all, should make us humble. I mean, you should have a sense of, wow, wow. But second of all, it should make us hopeful. There's a lot of junk, to put it politely that is transpiring on planet Earth today. Some of it actually scary, if we're honest, and we can be. Policies, powers, individuals at work who are evil, just pure and simple. Life is being destroyed right now on planet Earth because of that kind of evil. Life as God designed it is being continually eroded and twisted and distorted because of evil. Our hope is not in electing the right representatives or finding someone with common sense or being able to stockpile enough resources to carry us through a a difficult season that may be coming. No, the great hope is to be in right relationship with this God through Christ. There's every reason to be hopeful. We're hopeful even on this day because the same God who saved us by his power is the same God who will strengthen us until we make it home oh listen you who are true followers of jesus not only take heart show it share it your neighbors some of your neighbors are are so fearful right now they don't know what to do with themselves and when you show up in a genuine christian love and faith just love them or say come over for a meal let's just enjoy some time sit on my porch sit in the backyard want to swim in my pool And and when you just take time to love them and then you begin to share how your hope is not just set in Christ, but it's alive because of Christ. What a difference. Humble, because we didn't deserve it. Hopeful, because in God's grace and power, he's brought it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we need this word. We need to hear it often and we need to read it often and how we thank you that in your great love and mercy you have proclaimed a mystery that we would have never discovered on our own oh lord jesus you are sweet and sovereign savior have mercy on the nations long ago they were granted to you as your inheritance and they are coming to you but from our perspective it doesn't seem to be fast enough And we are not, King, that we should tell you even when to do something or how it should all come to pass, but we believe your word and we believe your promises and we pray that even in this place, this little out-of-the-way place that so many of us love, that you would issue again that divine summons and call our dear friends, call our dear family members to come to you that they might know the power of your salvation, of your strengthening. Father, by your Holy Spirit, and out of your great love and grace, would you seal to our hearts the words of life. Multiply the blessing of this powerful New Testament letter for us personally, for gospel hope, for the great mission of our Lord in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.